Hello and welcome to this episode of Redundancy Radio. This next episode is a conversation with Daniel Rachel, who is a writer and author whose past books include When Ziggy Played the Marquee, which is a collection of interviews with people who were there on the day, and Walls Come Tumbling Down, The Music and Politics of Rock Against Racism, Two-Tone and Red Wedge, which features over 150 interviews with key figures from that era and is very much worth a read. He also wrote Isle of Noises, which is, again, a very highly praised collection of interviews, this time with British songwriters about how and why they write songs and music. And I keep saying wrote, and, and Daniel is a fantastic writer, but his books sort of showcase not his way with words and writing, but his incredible skill at interviewing people and collecting their stories and then editing them together, which is something that is really far, far more complex than it sounds. So his latest book called Don't Look Back in Anger is Daniel doing what he does best and assembling the key characters from an era in history and getting them to tell him everything they remember about it. And Daniel has then arranged all the interviews into an oral history, which is separated into themes. Um, and the book is a lovely big sort of soup of anecdotes from the world of art, writing, raving, music, politics and people all set in the 90s. So if you have any interest whatsoever in the 90s, and judging from the popularity of Princess Diana and 90s throwback Instagram accounts, you do, then this book is for you. In it are anecdotes from Noel Gallagher, Tony Blair, Tajinder Singh, Mel C, Tracy Emin, and so many more people. I mean, just, it's, it's incredible. And I'm not going to lie, it does make you kind of despair slightly at the state of the world now compared to the 90s, particularly when you think about the kind of togetherness of that time. But it's an incredible read and it's chocked full of juicy celebrity behind the scenes anecdotes that we just weren't privy to back then because, because the internet didn't exist. I talked to Daniel about how he went about gathering his contributors, the beauty of an oral history and what the 90s were to him. So when, when did you come up with this idea and when, how long have you been working on this for? Uh, I guess all in all... It's been two years, but that's from beginning a research process to meeting all the contributors to finishing all the editing. Um, so, which feels to me quite a, a speedy uh, time, really. Two years. <laughs> I think it's because Island Noises took five years. You know, my first book. So, so it wasn't so bad, really. But, uh, but the idea, I, I, it, it, it's a natural progression, I guess. Mm. Uh, and a, se a sequel to Walls Come Tumbling Down, because mm -hmm. if that ended, you know, it was, that was music and politics starting in the mid-70s and ending just at the end of the 90s. And so the continuation, naturally, is then the, the 90s and the Cool Britannia years, which effectively starts with Margaret Thatcher's dismissal by the Conservative Party and then the electorates and then the Berlin Wall tumbling and Nelson Mandela being released and then this wave of optimism mm. that potentially was going to set up the new decade. And I guess in, in a way it does, except for the recession that hits immediately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if we forget about that, then it's a natural flow. <laughs> and why did you choose to do it in the style of an oral history? Because the last one was. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, th I, I love the format of it and the mm. style of it. And I, uh, I love the way that Studs Terkel does it. Uh, the American author, and I particularly love the way that uh, Gene Stein uh, did for Edie, the story of Edie. Um, yes, read uh, that. Yeah, Edie Warhol, Velvets, yeah. all that, C.D. Sedgwick. Um, and it's the idea 
that who am I to define a period of history when you have the voices and the people who were present and responsible for that history being made and if and to, it, to tell it in their words and I curate that is, is um, I think is a really exciting way to look back at the past and then you get into you know all these people say for example that went to Nebworth and none of them can can agree on what happened <laughs> <laughs> but we were all there we all saw it and the, and everybody has a different version of it and then you translate that to uh, feelings about Tony Blair or decisions he made as Prime Minister or or in the writing of what new Labour were going to do and again those people are uh, within Tony's inner circle a, a, a variation of that history a different angle on it a different way of viewing it and you start considering that against histories that are defined by men uh, normally and it's one version of it and that becomes our version of the world yeah so, so, that, true. so that's why and and, he, and and Gene Stein called it an oral narrative mm. and I kind of prefer that and curiously enough just as a little aside it was going to be, have the subtitle as an oral history of Call Britannia and the publisher said well what is an oral history the editor did and I said well you know everybody knows what she said they don't I said they do they don't they do and it was like one of those <laughs> so I then did a straw poll of about the first half dozen people I met who I knew read books you know they phoned me up or I said bumped into them what's this oral history uh, don't don't know actually is it is it this? And I was really shocked. And I said, but you read books, surely you know. And so, so that title got dropped. Oh, so what, so what are you calling it instead? You're just not calling it anything? It's called The Rise and Fall of Cool Britannia. And then there's a, they added as told by the people there or something. OK, yeah, that's really, that's really just saying what it is, isn't it? I guess that's maybe better, but... I don't know, I, I love oral histories. If I, if I, I wish there was kind of like a big section in bookshops that just had... Those. <laughs> the title Oral History, wow. Well, yeah, because I love it, because, um, because you get these anecdotes, and in your book, what's, what I love so much is, is you get these funny bits that you would... I was thinking, like, there was, there was a part where Jarvis Cocker was telling an anecdote that I was like, you would never get this in an interview. It, it's because he's kind of recalling a certain, a certain thing. Basically, he was talking about when he was on TFI Friday and there was a massive wooden cutout of him that Chris Evans had, and Jarvis Cocker went on the TV show and threw it out the window, and he only found out later that Lars Ulrich from Metallica was standing under the window, and it nearly killed him, because he was having a cigarette downstairs, and luckily it was raining, so he was sheltered. And I was just like, that kind of anecdote, you, you probably wouldn't get if you were just having a chat, because you're talking about these kind of very specific times, and then... I don't know, and then there's so many of these anecdotes. There's one, hang on, I'm actually going to find it. Guillotine to death by Jarvis Cocker. Two, three, five. Here's one. Will McDonald, who's that again? He was Will on TFI. <laughs> he was the sidekick. He was actually the producer of TFI Friday with Chris Evans, but he was Chris's sidekick. And Chris always used to call him Will. So <laughs> I think he, that sound has followed him round throughout his life, wherever he goes. If you're a 90s kid and you see him and he looks exactly the same, I know, of course, I couldn't help it when I met him. Will! <laughs> <laughs> Do you reckon he likes it? Uh, he, he, I don't think he minds because okay, it was good. done with such affection. Because Chris <laughs> Evans had that kind of way with people yeah. that made you... Uh, you know, if you like Chris Evans from the Radio 1 Breakfast Show 
and then you followed him onto television. He made you feel good because he yeah. was passionate about what he did and truly believed in it and did it with such verve. I mean, it's a great shame that ultimately he... A, a, a hubris sets in, I guess, and, mm. and then there's a downfall. But what was the anecdote you by Wilma? Sorry, yes, yeah. it's... Um it's Wilma Donald saying, there's a time when me, Chris, Gazza and Danny Baker arranged to meet in a pub on the corner of Shepherd's Bush Green, blah, blah, blah. They got really drunk and then they said, let's go into town. We were driving down Bayswater and Gazza jumped out of the car into a workman's hole with a pneumatic drill. <laughs> then we got stuck in traffic and a double-decker bus pulled up beside us. Gazza knocked on the window and said, can I drive your bus, mate? Amazingly, the bus driver said, yeah, all right. Gazza got into the cab and started driving the bus and we were pissing ourselves. And my favourite image was a bloke reading the newspaper on the top deck, blissfully unaware that below him, England's most famous footballer was in control of the bus and then it just I mean there's just so many things like that where it's like I just don't know what in what other context you could get these funny anecdotes and this book because everyone was so pissed the whole time in the 90s <laughs> there's so many of them because everyone was just being so naughty yeah and, 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 and there's no they didn't have Instagram to put the little sort of snippets on so we didn't know about these things unless we don't know unless people like you collect these books that's true and that anecdote ends with Will spread eagled on the top of a limousine being <laughs> held down all four limbs by the two pet shop boys Gazza and Chris Evans they go to Damon Albarns in Notting Hill where they end up recording oh, yeah. a song in the basement and Justine Frischman from Elastica makes them cheese sandwiches yeah. <laughs> But also, I love the idea, and I'm going to come on to this later about the no phones thing. I love the idea of um, just going knocking on people's doors. Like, oh, we're in Camden, let's go and knock on yes. so-and-so's door and see if they're in. Because that's kind of when interesting things happen, isn't it? Yeah, of course, well, go and, and call for them. Yeah, yeah. and it, if you know where everyone lives and you're sort of running around um, North London, probably with some drugs in your pocket and sort of 10 pints in it, you are going to probably go and want to do that. And, and I think ultimately that's one of the, the defining features of Cool Britannia in, in as much as places like the Atlantic Bar, which was a, a, ultimately a restaurant, and the Groucho and, the, and, the, and um, those kind of members clubs, mm. the people who were making their way culturally in, in, in the 90s gravitated towards those places. And as you rightly say, they don't know necessarily who's going to be there, but because people from different worlds, whether it was Eddie Izzard or Stephen Fry or a, or, a, or a minister or a musician, they would all meet and start to work with one another. It's where um, Keith Allen met mm. Damien Hirst. Yeah. And then they become, a, then the next thing you know, they've done fat les. And it's, and, and it's because of just meeting in the, in the Groucho. There's a really good anecdote with Keith Allen and Damien Hirst. They used to go to the Groucho toilets and, and rub their face in a bag of flour and That's then come out for the press. And the press were like, no. Is that, that can't be cocaine. And they were like, well, is it or is it not? Who knows? That's so naughty, those it's two so naughty, naughty boys. It's so naughty, isn't it? And Keith says, you know, Keith Allen in cocaine shock. And yeah. they said, it's just not going to happen because he openly snorted wherever, as did Liam <laughs> and as did Noel. And that was another part of the 90s, wasn't it? This kind yeah. of... They were so up front. Nobody cared, you know, about their public image or what might be said of them. And a lot of that, I think, came from class, particularly from the Gallagher's. That, you know, that's how we are. Yeah. Why would we change just because you've got a microphone or a camera in front of us, you know? And there's, so that, that all is part of the, the hedonistic strand of the book, for sure. I wanted to know, uh, the book aside, which has got how many contributors talking about the 90s? 68. 68. Can you tell me what the 90s was like for you? Can you set the scene for you personally, what was going on? Uh, yeah, um, I formed, I was in a band called Rachel's Basement, four-piece guitar band, in the slipstream of Britpop, 
and I was living with the lead singer of Ocean Colour Scene, Simon, and above me was uh, the guitar player Steve Craddock, who was also in Paul Weller's band. And that, so my whole 20s was defined by be, being in a band, being with my best mate in a flat, and, uh, and it was a magnificent time. It was in Birmingham, and it felt like we had a self-contained scene, really. Uh, we had a, a brilliant pub uh, in Mosey called The Jug of Ale, where all the bands came. So I saw Oasis supporting a band, a Scottish band called Whiteout before the first single. And, and bands like Cast came and Cooler Shaker. Uh, and I remember seeing Divine Comedy, with, and there was 10 or 15 of us in the audience. It was that kind of a pub, and it became the Circuit Pub. And that was our, that was our place. We were there every single night, every single night. And, uh, and the brilliant thing was that Ocean Colour Scene didn't, uh, had had, beginning of the 90s, few front pages enemy and then they dropped out and got dropped and for two years they wrote what would become Moses Shoals but with the forgotten band but for me they were the the greatest band and um, so in that two-year period it, a scene developed around them and we had a great club in in town called Sweat and eventually people like Paul Wello came up and Paolo Hute with DJ and Brendan Lynch. And they, came, they were pulled into the ocean colour scene, scene of which I felt, you know, as integral as anybody. And so it was all, and it was that. And, then, and at the same time, I had a girlfriend in London. So if she would either come up every weekend or every other weekend or I'll come down to London. And, uh, and so I then began to... Uh, find my way through contemporary art oddly enough which I don't I wasn't aware that I was interested in and she, uh, I was reminded that in 1990 I went to see Rachel White Reed's The House really? in the East End of London and I don't know why I would have and apparently I, I dragged her there and I don't know why I would have been into doing that it wasn't in my way of thinking and then as I began to trace this book I began to find old things and I've gone to loads of off beat exhibitions and strange showings of what were the uh, what became known as the young British artists, unbeknowing to myself until ultimately sensation was at the Royal Academy. Yeah. And um, and that was the big coming out party. So there was and so there was a lot of London going on. And then when Simon, my band got to support and did some great gigs and we were massive in Birmingham, but we didn't really get any and we toured loads, but we didn't we didn't get signed and we didn't make it. We were kind of always on that edge. But when Simon's band sold a million records and went to number one, and we were still living together, it was extraordinary. And, I, and so I got, I got in, I was in Simon's world, and that meant Oasis as well, because they supported Oasis. Oasis came and did supports for Ocean Colours, and they'd just turn up and play acoustics, or, and because of the Paul Weller connection. So, it, yeah, it was amazing, amazing decade God, for me. I can't even imagine how much fun that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was just because it was my mate, so it was great. Yeah, that's what but that's was great, because yeah. also you probably have the kind of... You know, you don't have to do. You don't have to be like that involved. You can kind of like this amazing, not even bystander. You're in it, but you're not sort of like in the tabloids. You're just sort of like in there with them, just enjoying all, just enjoying that vibe and enjoying like what they're doing. And there's one photograph I managed to slip into the book, which is slightly blurred and it's black and white. But I took in our flat in Mosley, and uh, it's Simon playing guitar with P.P. Arnold, who's dropped in. As, as kind of happened, and uh, and they were singing, you know, and she was just singing things like the first cut is the deepest, and it, it's and it's slightly blurred, but it was because I don't really talk about myself in the book. Well, I don't. Really. No. And so that was my little thing of, I don't, that's how how much I love this period. You know, that picture kind of says something. It says a lot to me. Yeah. 
Amazing. Yeah. Um, do you tend to look back on the past 90s or any other time? Do you tend to... Are you the kind of person who looks back on the past with kind of rose-tinted glasses? Um, Quite nostalgic? No, because... Um, I don't need rose-tinted glasses because it was brilliant, but at the same time, I was on the dole, I was on housing benefit. Um, there were long periods when Simon was on tour, so I was effectively living on my own. Uh, I had a girlfriend in London, so I didn't see her. And when you're in a band that are on the crest of what's... Uh, we were always being talked about was we were going to be the next big thing, and we, you know, we were... Uh, hundreds were coming to the gig so it was a big thing but when the, those nights weren't happening the the days could be really it could sometimes be tremendous lows and it's also the low of um of getting involved in drugs as well mm. you know and that hits hard so there were so there were hard times as well you know and um and living on the dole at, uh, through all my 20s was really really hard your whole 20s yeah Wow. Yeah, the dole and housing benefit, and then having to try and, uh, you know, and having to sign on every two weeks. I mean, most, virtually everybody in Mosley was in a band. It was extraordinary. But, and so we were all going down blagging that we were um, not working, and yet we, they were, must have been fully aware, because they could just <laughs> pick up the Evening Mail or sometimes the national papers and read a little thing about all these different people that were doing things. But it, so that's hard, 30 quid a week. Mm. And trying to find and and uh, which is food and everything, you know that that was tricky. And Simon didn't eat, so yeah, those kind of things. So we we wasn't fussed about buying anything like that. You know, <laughs> it was all right down the pub. I mean, he was incredibly generous with drink and that. Yeah. So no, uh, but that's a very personal, that's a very personal part of it. The other side of it that's not so rose tinted is the area of lad culture which is a big part of the book, isn't it? Yeah, I lad wanted to talk to you about that. <laughs> Ladettes, lad culture, against Loading Magazine, The Girly Show, the girl power, the way women were treated, the way women were depicted. And a lot of people I were, was involved with and around loved Loaded and took out the images of the page three girls and had them up on the walls. And, and, the, and you can imagine a kind of a male-orientated group how they would talk about that. I, 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 I uh, was vocal against that and didn't mm. like it and wasn't happy about it. And, um, and, and, but that was all pervasive, really, of that period. And, and there's a lot of uncomfortableness now. And reflectively, a lot of the contributors are, yeah. but probably, you know, uh, but weren't, like David Baddiel talks about doing the front yeah. page of Loaded uh, uh, with a couple of girls, models, and, and he says it's sexist. I can see that now, but he did it, you know. I wouldn't have done that at the time. It's, it's quite a big chunk of the book is, is a chat about, well, reading it as a woman. Yeah. The, the, I love reading about, talking about, listening to music from the 90s, I, I, like a lot of people. Um, but reading, reading this book and, and, and just having it constantly fed in that it was just this, this new culture of, of lad and everything was kind of built for men and it was kind of like, yeah, you go and drink 10 pints, you go and do this because you're a man and it's okay and yeah. it was very sort of like pro, a very pro-man time. Yes. And then when women came in for the girly show or the whole kind of like ladette thing, the response to that in the book is, is, is not good. They were sort of like, oh, you know, it wasn't very good. It was a bit crap that they did that. It didn't really hit home. And, and I think a lot of women doing the, the ladette things, it seems to me, were kind of doing it out of a sense of 
getting their own back. So it, it, women, it, women had such a weird time in the 90s. Yeah, I think they did. Such a strange, such a strange time to know how to be. I, I always think about it as kind of girl power and, and, and that kind of thing, but actually I don't think it really was like that, was it? No, no, and it was important to get a lot of female voices into the book to make sure yeah. that there was some kind of counter. But as I tried to with the previous book, I set out to try and get a half and half, and you just can't find enough people to, to, make, to make it equitable uh, gender-wise. But the, but the voices are strong in there, and so, you know, you get, you get people in there saying, just because we drink pints and go out and enjoy ourselves that doesn't make us a ladette mm. that just makes us enjoying ourselves so you yeah. know we reject that title that 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 so uh, that that's the first thing i think but then you get girls who as you rightly say are aping the boys that was what the girly show was and sarah uh, sarah cox uh, sarah cox prancing around and doing the kind of the the things they did which was straight out of the word you know, which was, again, it was just, it, it's typical post-pub kind of entertainment. Um, oddly enough, I don't think TFI Friday was like that. It no. Didn't, he, he didn't behave like that. Chris seemed different, and, the, and, the, and he had a lot of women on. But the important thing was setting uh, a debate between somebody like Cheryl Garrett, who was the editor of The Face at the time, who did have um, uh, women in states of undress, in, on her pages, as did Katie Grand in Dazed and Confused and mm -hmm. later Katie England. And, um, and their, it's really fascinating, their argument as to why that isn't sexist. And I think they talk a lot about the, um, the eye the, of, the, of the model. And, and uh, it's Cheryl that talks about this. You can tell from the eye whether a picture is exploitative or not exploitative. Yeah. And whether it's... Um, yeah, and, and which the Loaded people uh, negate, you know, and, and again... Well, yeah, because the, the people talking about Loaded magazine in, in the book, some of them even even now say, well, you know, what we were doing, it, it didn't matter because you'd get other magazines that had naked women and then why didn't they get shut down or, or told off? Because they were more, like, arty or whatever. Yes. And it's like, well, it's just... It's a huge difference. But it... it, it I, yeah, I can't really... I'm, I'm so glad Cheryl's in there. Because what she says is so important, and I mean the face was so important at the time as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Mel C uh, from the Spice Girls really talking about the importance of girl power, and and although they there's a sense that they're more and more uh, playing to audiences of of, of uh, eight, nine, ten year olds. Yeah. Though what emerges is the influence that it had on those young girls, and they weren't all just the young girls. There were teenagers as well, and then there were adults too. And um, and so you have Mira Sayal and Gorinda Chadder both going. The Spice Girls were brilliant. They made us feel empowered, yeah. and that was a great and strong thing. And and likewise, thinking of those two as um, authors, film directors, comedians. They were important figures in the 90s, and, and so it was important in having them explain what they do, the statement that here are women in amongst this world doing uh, mm. uh, uh, artistic, having great artistic achievements, ultimately in Bend It Like Beckham or um, Anita and Me, yeah. you know. <laughs> so good. Goodness gracious me. Yeah. They were there, you know. But, but then I think of, you know, how Louise Wenner would wear a very tight crop top and why not but then she'd be depicted 
pouting on front covers or when uh, Sonia from Echo Belly was yeah. shot by uh, um, Rankin and on the cover of I I not IQ, what's it called? Is it IQ? Um, and she's leaning forward and uh, or kind of to show cleavage with uh, uh, buttons undone on the shirt. Mm. And and she explains why that photo shoot happened, you know. But it's it, it, it could it could be one frame in a thousand. But he got the frame he wanted, which he knew he could put on the cover and perpetuates that idea that women in the 90s were required to show to to. Um, be sexual as a way of, of, of uh, selling themselves. Yeah, for sure. You, you, you have done, considering the 90s was such a, a white male time, I think you've done very well in, I mean, I know you said you were trying to get 50-50 split of men and women, but I, did you? I, no, no, you can't. You that's, can't, That's no. what I mean, you can't. But were there, any, so, were there quite a lot of women that you wanted to speak to that said wouldn't. no? Or? Toby Ball, uh, mm, Sarah, Sarah Cox. Um, really? Kate Moss. Uh, Obviously. <laughs> I was about to go to Kate's house. I, I was so, so excited. It took me so long. You're joking. No, I was... Uh, uh, it was all <laughs> on the cards. It had it, gone from I'm not sure to uh, no to yes, I'm going to now do it. I, uh, she sent me her address. Uh, so it was set for 10.30 on this one morning. At, uh, about 9.45, I was stepping out my front door to go to her house and I was told she's, she's got cold feet. And I so wish I'd just have ignored it and gone... Oh, I am flabbergasted. Yeah. You would have been probably the first person to get Kate's version of, oh, my God, let's not think about it. I know, I know. Whereas the, <laughs> oh with Sarah Cox God. and uh, Zoe Ball, I just hit a management wall mm. that they reacted against my persistence and thought I was a, a, a pain personified. Which is a shame, because actually if you just had a contact and someone knew them through a friend, you might, they might have just said yes. I think I might have even begun to try that through... People mm. at the BBC, and, it, and that got—I think they got wind of it, and that upset, and that annoyed them as well. But so I'm, I don't you know, know if they—I they, don't know if they got the the invitation or not. To be honest, there's a lot of women who I actually thought would say no, who obviously said yes. Yeah. Um, Tracy Emin gave you a lot of information. Oh, she was great. Yeah. Do she you know what though? Very Meeting, vocal in the book. Who? Sorry. Which is very vocal in the book. Yeah, but I, I really had to know my onions. Really. And I didn't, you know, in the way that. You know, you when you're passionate about music, you know it's so inside out and every which way you stretch it. And although I know a little about contemporary arts and I'd read a lot about it and really gend up for the book as well, compared to something like Tracy Emin, whose life is art, mm. I, I just felt um, that my knowledge was lacking and, and because it was lacking, I've, I felt I'd disappointed her. That, you know, here's somebody that can't... Why don't you know... Why don't you know more if you come in to speak to me? And I, I should have known. I, I can't. Well, I haven't got that life to do it, and I wish I did know more. And I've, I, I feel frustrated and get more out of her. And yet she's brilliant in the book. Well, I suppose you weren't asking her about art. You were asking her about this decade, of which she was a huge part. And actually a lot of the things she speaks about aren't necessarily, you know, going deep into the art of the time. It's about... She, in fact, one of the most interesting things in the book for me was her talking about um, the... Thatcher brought in this kind of... Enterprise allowance. The enterprise allowance, which allowed Tracy M. And she, she basically says, without this, I wouldn't have become who I am today because yeah. it set me on the course. I, I had a bit of money. I started. She, I think she started the shop with Sarah Lucas or something with that money, or maybe it was something before. No, there's the, two things there, and you're absolutely right, say, about the enterprise allowance. And it's the same reason why Alan McGee had set up Curation Records. He mm. was on, And I... I 
it was, to me it was a blag. I got on the Enterprise Allowance in the late 80s as a blag to be a musician and stay. Because basically what you had to do was prove, show on a bank statement there was a thousand pounds in your account, which was a hell of a lot of money then. Uh, so you, you got somebody to lend it you on the statement pay back the money, then you were guaranteed for a minimum of 12 months you would get £40 a week. So not any more than the dole, but they wouldn't hassle you. Oh. And then what I had was somebody coming round every two months checking all my books. What are your projections? Show me your forecast. Show me your in and out budget. Really? And I lied and made up the whole thing. I don't know what, <laughs> but it got people off your back. So, But yeah, Tracy's a main exponent on that. Um, but what the shop which was her and, as you say, Sarah Lucas, was because Sarah sold an art piece and with the money, yeah. they set up the shop, which was at the top of Brick Lane in a, in a kind of crumbling East End. And they made, they, from the salvage of the ruins, as she describes it, of what's around them, picking off the streets, um, the effects of Thatcherism and, and uh, deindustrialization, they could find scraps and ruins, and from that they would make art. Did you go to the shop? I don't think I did. I've never met anyone who did go, and I would love to meet someone because I just I've I've, I've studied it a lot over oh, the years. Oh, have you? Yeah, I just I just love the idea of these two women artists just being best mates and just setting up the shop. And they were doing stuff like they would make they would get glass ashtrays and stick a photo of Damien Hirst on the bottom so you'd stub out your fag on Damien Hirst's face or whatever. Yeah. It's Damien Hirst's face, I think it was. Yeah, and, and it, they would just make How much those... is it? Fifty P. Yeah. And then Trace would say, right, it's a pound now because we sold we've sold one. Yeah. Then the third one was two pounds because we'd sold the pound and they kept on and T shirts. It went incrementally five quid yeah. for every sale. I can't it's like when I said I didn't remember going to see the house. In mm. my head I think I went to the shop. But I think either Tracy or, or Sarah says that they wrote down everybody in a book who came. So oh, I'm really? not going to make that claim in case that book ever arrives. But so it feels like I went, but I don't know. Because I used to be, a, my, uh, I stayed in a flat about two or three minutes walk away from where the, where the, the shop was. Yeah, amazing. Love yeah. that idea. Yeah. Um, and also Sarah Lucas, I didn't think you'd get to speak to her, but she's... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and yeah. It's great also, having her, I mean, there's, yeah. there's so many good people... But um, and also Justine Frischman, you were never gonna get to speak to. Ah, uh, well, you say that, but that's another kind of curious story. I spoke uh, with her on email about four or five times. Uh, it went from I'm not doing it, I will do it, I'm not doing it, I have done it, I, I, I won't do it, I'll do a phone, no, I won't. I will do a Q and A on on um, uh, 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 and, and I'll and I'll send it to you. Brett Anderson wrote to her on my behalf. Then she said to me, I've done it, I just need to check it over. She'd written it all up. And then, and then, and then uh, this, so about the sixth communication, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And I when I met Damon, yeah. when I met Damon, he had, he had turned me down for over a year, Damon Albarn. And then, and then when, he, when he agreed to do it and I met him, he said, I don't know where you got the idea that I wouldn't talk about Justine from. And, um, and there was something about the, um, the triangle between... Sean Keeping asked me this on Six Music. Would you say that Britpop started because of the love triangle between uh, Damon Orban, Justin Frischman and Brett Anson? Which Another is a, thing that I'm absolutely obsessed with. <laughs> so so I, if I was going to give the questions to Justin ahead, which I never do, I always meet people, mm. she, got, she knew I was talking in that area. And, I, and, and so ultimately she pulled out. 
and which is a huge, huge disappointment, knowing it's that she's written that all the answers that were, were, should have been in the book. I thought she famously would only ever talk about her, her painting now and not, and not anything to do with the past. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's why then. So, well, no, it sounds like you got pretty close. If you go to someone, I've just interviewed 20 people and you know all of them about this decade, about the politics of the decade, the cultural, like, tension, everything about it. Do you want to get involved? Seeing that all your friends have done it and you want to kind of maybe read that, you're going to want to contribute to it. So I'm sad that she, she didn't want to, but I can see why she was tempted. And so what I wanted to ask you is, how do you go about, if, if you don't know the person already who you're going to interview, yeah. how do you go about getting them? Uh, so Justine, I, I mean, the thing is trying to find a, a contact for them is really hard. So with Justine, I went through the ga her galleries in, okay. in the States and tried either phoning people, asking how do I get how do I get hold or contact her? And then they tell you all things like, send an email to, and we'll forward it. And what's the email? Info at, you know, so it's like, there's nobody, you can't even address it to anybody. So yeah. there's that kind of way. And then eventually after I met Brett, I did mention to Brett, I, I'm struggling to get Justin on side. And he said, would you like me to write to her? And I said, that'd be amazing. It's very kind of Thank Brett. Thank yeah. Are they still mates? They are. <gasps> Love so, that. Yes. Are her and Damon mates or? I don't know. I don't know. Um, and so it's trying to find roundabout ways of doing things like that or trying to orchestrate mm. finding a friend or a, a different way in or some way of getting an email address or... Yeah, it's... It, it, I mean, the, the obvious thing is you go straight to the management, but the management block you, and, yeah. uh, and rightly so. And, um, yeah, uh, I remember that with Isla Noises, and I, I tried forever to try and contact the Pet Shop Boys, and their management had been taken over by Madonna's previous management, so that you, could, you couldn't find a single connection on uh, Google searches or anything. And eventually, when I met Neil and Chris, they said, oh, yes, we were aware of you a long time ago, but we were just seeing how you got on. <laughs> we were aware of you. That's nice. Yeah, but, they, but it is very, very intriguing, the whole, you know, Brett, Damon, Justine, and then of course, then then Damon and Liam. You know, transfer becomes the next thing, doesn't yeah. it? And then, yeah. What for the battle? Number one battle. Well, just them in general. And yeah, and 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 the and finally, being out of and uh, get, pull out of them. Why? What? Why the antagonism truly started? Which as. As I mentioned to you as we were walking up here, you know, the book's had quite a number of national reviews and nobody, surprisingly, has picked up on what I thought was the... the, the if, I mean, I don't write books for scoops, but that the scoop, if you wanted a scoop, which to me is a tabloid scoop, why did the Britpop war start? Damon O'Barn tells you and Noel Gallagher and Alan McGee confirm it. Wait, have I missed something? I, I just thought it was because Liam Gallagher said he wanted to shag Justine Frischman. No, that comes after. So, so Alan... Yeah, so Alan McGee says the reason why the Britpop war started is because Damon slept with Liam's girl. Oh, yeah! At the, some might say, number one celebration party. That night. Yeah! And I just I, got... I thought that was just common knowledge that I didn't, just didn't know about before. OK. Nobody knew about it. Who is the woman? And <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't you? You don't have to say. They're very protective, that inner circle of that woman. Because apparently she's, you know, got family and kids now and they, 
that that is not something that should go in print. But um, oh, so but she Noel was the then, woman, Noel the Helen of Troy. Uh, <laughs> Noel then confirmed it, and then Damon, oddly enough, says in the book, "I always thought it might be that," and I thought, "God, you didn't know for certain." Wow, and then and then and then after, I know Rufus Norris, who's the creative artistic director of the National, and I happened to be talking to Rufus, and he said, and I was telling him about the book, and he said, "Do you know what? I met Damon after you met him uh, for the book, and he told me he told this person because, and I said, and he said, and Rufus said to Damon, why did you tell him? He said because he asked me." <laughs> And then, and then, so Damon told, and then Damon's fear, he said, uh, he told to Rufus, said to Rufus was, that's what this whole book's going to be about now. They're going to, it's all going to become about that again. And, and it hasn't. And in a way, that's a kind of nice thing. And also, as Damon says in the book, it's a kind of, it would be quite high moral ground to take by Liam if he was saying, we, we must have monogamous relationships because that certainly wasn't the case with Liam Gallagher. And, and, and if that was what the... So it was, yeah, it was a more personal vent from that. It all seems silly now, the same kind of saying it out loud to you. Yeah, it does. But that's what's so great about the 90s, all this silliness causing so much music. And, but know, then again, if somebody like... slept with your boyfriend at your big celebration party... Yeah, it would define the decades. <laughs> But that, but you could see why you would suddenly have a hatred for somebody. You yeah, know. for sure. Yeah, especially so, if they were my uh, like um, professional rival. Yes, because if you watch the film that's about the Britpop wars uh, that came out in the early two thousands, they ask Damon on camera, "What started it?" And he says, I- "I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you." And he refuses. So that that. I just had natural curiosity then. And then as I read and read and read, like you, I just assumed everybody knew the reason. And then I thought, hang on, there is no reason. You can't ever quite pinpoint it to a a moment because they were friends before. I just kind of assumed it was more the press saying there was a feud when actually there wasn't. That's what I thought. Well, there you are. Yeah, exactly. I think I thought that. And then I thought, no, there's something. Because they they hung out a little bit with each other, Blown Oasis, and they were... They were happy to be filmed together and they were talking about each other's records. It was friendly and then it turned. That's why. But the competition probably made them both try so much harder to make better music and that's what made it so good because they were just like, right, let's do it. And friendly competition or any competition just makes things like so much more intense. And of course, Damon goes on to make brilliant records. Yeah. Yeah, Part Life's a great album. Great Escape's a fantastic album. Yeah. The Blur, Blur album is brilliant. Uh, they, uh, every Blur album's great. Well, we've got Justine Frischman to thank for the Blur, Blur album because, I oh, know that maybe that was 13. 13. When it's just... No Distance Left to Run. Oh. Ooh, what a song. <laughs> there's a lot of Brett in the book. There's a lot of Brett and there's a lot Brett's of heroin. Great. And heroin, I think, is the... You'll get to that later. He- heroin is part of the doubt. Yeah, I don't think I even want to read on. <laughs> Everything goes tits up. Yeah, but, but also what's extraordinary if you do read on is, is a whole counter-narrative to this whole book, which is the political side of it and the redefining of Britishness and the uh, coming from uh, the thinkers and uh, of the left predominantly. And, and that there's some real hard political stuff within this kind of mad book of hedonism and cocaine, etc. And, we, and yeah. we learn a lot about this idea of the project and what... New Labour were trying to do, uh, and again, it's in 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 popular mythology will tell you that 
Tony Blair latches on to this whole idea of Cool Britannia yeah. and defines him and his party around it. And what we reveal by talking to him, to Tony Blair, to Alistair Campbell, to John Major, people like that, is that simply was not the case. And behind the scenes, there was a, 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 an attempt to define Britishness. And that story gets played, at, at, you know, Britishness that wasn't to do with stately homes, mm. wasn't to do with Shakespeare, wasn't to do with the royal family, a Britishness that could be defined by popular culture, by the Beatles, and a redefined national flag in the same way as in the 1960s, the maple leaf was invented to, uh, as a symbol of, of Canada. You mm. can reinvent nations and nationhood. And there's, there's some extraordinary revelations and passages and, uh, in that, that that then plays out. And of course, you know, that ultimately is, I think the, the quashing of that is the end note of the book, which is 9-11. Yeah, very clear ending. <laughs> yeah, if not, and, and the, what you think may be the ending, uh, we've been joined by a poodle. <laughs> a poodle and a, that's what you can hear barking in the background, a poodle with a, a tennis ball. But, uh, and, and, and the precursor uh, the, is the death of Princess Diana. But you should yes. keep reading for that. Because no, that's I will, a yeah. Fine, that's a, that's a, a really, there's some a fantastic opinion about that from all unexpected quarters. I am looking forward to that bit. You know what, a lot of this is because cause I was born in 89. 89, right, OK. Um, I do remember um, you know, the World Cup and a few, a few sort of splashes of things in the remember 90s. Remember Diana? Spice Girls, yeah, remember Diana. Do you? yeah. So what, um, you were um, eight? Yeah, very clearly. What happened? I just remember being upstairs in my bunk bed and hearing Dad saying Lady Di's snuffed it. <laughs> he called upstairs and said that. Lady Di's snuffed it. And I didn't it. even know, but it was just so palpable. I was like, I mean, parents were upset, everyone was upset. At school we talked about it, it was a very big deal. Were watching... you upset? No, because right. I was only eight. I just remember it being like, oh, this is, that is sad. And... Seeing on the TV all the flowers and the teddies and the, and the people crying, it was just, it, there was a definite feeling. I mean, it's weird that an eight-year-old would... But it was so huge that you couldn't miss it, really. And then, you know, 9-11 happened when I was only 11. And again, that was sort of... I didn't really understand what was going on. No. But enough to know that it was huge. Yes. And then, it, anyway, don't want to think that it's about me, but nice to read about... I, I think that's why I'm so fascinated with the 90s, because I... I, I I was sort of there, and I remember sort of Don't Forget Your Toothbrush and, and the TV and, yes. the, and the music, obviously. I mean, hearing Ocean Colour Scene, even now, I, I, I feel so six or seven. I, yeah. I, I feel like I'm back there. Yeah. Um, which is so great. But also, I feel like I, I, I want to hark... I, I've got a kind of like a desperate want to, to be in, 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 in a world like the 90s, where it seems like, for me, it's a bit sort of like a big soup. You've got everything mixing together. You've got the artists mixing with the writers, mixing with the footballers, mixing with Tony Blair and the politicians. You've got everyone, like, the sort of the mainstream was just so huge. You've got, I mean, everyone listening to the same music on the radio. Everyone's so collective. These yes. Going to these raves, everyone coming together. There was, yes. people were less sort of in their boxes. And what I wanted to ask you about, I mean, the elephant in the room in the book for me is, is just the lack of the internet and how it's probably, like... That for me, that is just everyone's just mixing together because of that reason. Celebrities were doing what they were doing, and these kind of crazy anecdotes about you know jumping on a bus were happening because no one had phones and no one was filming anything and no one was worried about being filmed. And and at the same time, no one really cared about their who they were mixing with or what they're doing. They were just doing what they wanted to do and doing what they enjoyed. And so, 
they became into this big soup of people. Mm. And of course, like there were lots of things in the 90s that weren't good, as you say, um, you know, a lot of people being on the dole or heroin or all these things happening. But at the same time, like, I just, when I was reading the passage about the, um, like even like the raving, you know, like reading the, the chapter in the book about that, it just, it just makes you long for that. There's an extraordinary documentary recently on, tele, on the BBC with Jeremy Della. I saw it. And, and yeah, and so Jeremy Della d- delivers a, 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 the rave story, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. To, to, to a, a, an inner London uh, school uh, room full of sixth form students and uh, who don't know nothing about the minor strike in the 80s and how rave yeah. and everything. And at the end of it, he puts on all the lights, doesn't he, flashing around the classroom like, like they're at a rave. And, uh, and you just think, wow, what a, what a lesson. And then within seconds, they're all, they've all, everybody's got their phone out. Yeah, and, and they're, they're literally f- just in a classroom with a laser on. Like, it's not even that good to film. Like, I don't know what, yeah, they yeah. just couldn't even... And then the fo- taking the photographs, look at this, wow. So then the next cut is them actually just uh, interacting with their phones and doing whatever they do, you know. And, yeah. and it seemed very symbolic that the whole hour that Jeremy Della had, uh, um, who, who had been talking about uh, giving of yourself to a you know, in a field to music, to collective uh, feelings and togetherness, um, ended up with people in isolation, bored, and just going back to... Yeah. Um, and it was... It, it, uh, yeah, it was, it, that was sad. I mean, I, I don't... I, you know... I, it, but the thing... I mean, there's a thing that... The modern world is is what it is, and we people have phones, so, let, so that's how the world is. But, but equally, there's... An image keeps on coming into my head, and it's of Jill Fermanovsky. I love st- her. Yeah, yeah. A great photographer. She's on great. stage at Nebworth, taking a photograph of Liam Gallagher's back, and the, and uh, in front of him, 125,000 people at Nebworth. And if you look at that photograph, there's not a single camera. Not even like a pointing, little Kodak or anything. At Liam. But what? But the more you think about that, the more it tells you that that collective moment where everybody's been punching the air to live forever, I'm a rock and roll star, or don't look back in anger, is that they're all in the moment with Liam, with Oasis, communally, yeah. at watching and feeling every second of that experience. That will never, ever repeat itself in, in modern history. That's literally heartbreaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know, yeah. That's, that's, that's why it's so fascinating. And it was just... It wasn't even that long ago. And you know another bonkers thing that you'll come to? 9-11 that gets talked about, gets talked about what's happening with George Bush the moment he gets told. Tony Blair was delivering a lecture at the TUC conference in Brighton, agrees to do the talk but says to the conference, I'm not staying, I need to go back to London, obviously. With Alistair Campbell, they then go to Brighton Railway Station, wait on the platform, get onto a train. Alistair said when I asked him, I don't think it was first class, get into a four-seater. One of their aides puts in a little earpiece and is listening to Five Live to get the updates of what's going on. And And then they make their way on British Rail back to London to go to Downing Street on a train. And it's just like <laughs> the, 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 the biggest event in history in, the, in post-war, you know. 
Why didn't they have a car? I don't understand. Do you know what I mean? It's extraordinary because <laughs> it was quicker to get a train. I said, did you have tickets? I love that, you know, those kind of questions. I said to Alice, yeah. do you have tickets? So I, I don't think so. I think we probably had to go and buy those. I Which mean, you couldn't buy from a machine. You'd have to go to the desk and like queue up and pay with cash. Yeah, you could just walk down the train. And, you know, there's reports coming in the Twin Towers. Have, have two planes have gone into Twin Towers. And, oh, there's Tony Blair <laughs> scribbling in a notebook. What's he scribbling? Well, Alistair said he looked over and Tony, reading upside down, Tony was writing things like Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden. And what Alistair says was, we had known, perhaps for the last 10 years, that something of, of this magnitude was brewing. And he says... Tony got it quicker than everybody else. And the, that list exists, apparently. And there he is, within an hour of 9-11, writing down what is... What he thinks has happened. And what, and what is going to define the next couple of years. It's extraordinary to think his, his head was that. Wow. He was so sharp on it. But I just love the mundanity of it all. It's just great. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's so true. I wanted to ask you if you think that the art and music in the 90s was exceptionally good or do you think that the entire nation was just more open-minded and that the, the, the sort of collective spirit made it feel better? Well, I think that's true, as, as you say it. I mean, what immediately came to mind is the art of Damien Hirst making a pop video of Blur yeah. for Country House and the treatment simply says Benny Hill. <laughs> And, and Benny Hill means that you have Matt Lucas on the set with members of Blur running round in a, seven, in a mock 1970s television programme style, chasing page three models who are dressed, you know, that, you know, and that, that, what kind of a mad mix is that? But that, and that's the number one song of the day. And that's the Brit, that, that, that was the Britpop war song, wasn't it, Country House? Yeah. And so that's kind of crazy. But yet, if you just simply listen to Country House, it's a fantastic song. Yeah, it is good. It's really great. And, and Blur made great singles. There were loads of bands making great, great singles. Verve, Cast, Ocean Colour Scene, Oasis, uh, Supergrass, loads and loads of great records. And then the, in the art world, you know, many of the people that we've mentioned, Sarah Lucas and Matt Collishaw and Jeremy Della, and all these artists making immediate, accessible art. You know, if you look at a bed that's all ruffled up and got the debris of the night before, uh, uh, you understand that, you recognise it. I remember going to Sensation. When, oh, did you? Yeah, when I was little. Wow. Well, I must have been about nine or Blimey. eight or something. And I got it. Did you? It's so exciting. I think my mum took me there for that reason, because... It was art that anyone could understand. Yes. And then from then on, I was like, I understand art. And then I went on to study art a yeah. lot because of that. Because oh, I was right. like, this is it's amazing. Isn't that so cool? That and, is and, really and, cool. You know, since then, I've had lots of conversations with people about, you know, Damien Hirst being crap and it's too, it's too, um, it's too simple, it's too whatever. Um, you know, people sort of like to bitch about Tracy Emin and Damien Hirst and that lot because they think it's, it's an easy target. But my, my view is, and I think it's, it's the same with a lot of music like by Oasis and Blur, is that it's, it's music for, for the everyman and it's art for the everyman. It, it's, it's a gateway to understanding so much more. Yes. And, it's, and that should be praised because to make art that can speak to everyone is so much harder yes. than making art that, no one under, that, that only a few can understand. When I asked Matt Collishaw what he thought of sensation, he said 
it's it's a bit like somebody who buys a David Bowie compilation album. He said, yeah. He said, yeah. a real fan would buy Hunky Dory or Aladdin Sane. So true. And and but and I think it was around 2001. I went to White Cube in Hoxton, and they had a retrospective of Tracy's uh, art. And when I saw her work collectively, I then understood far deeper what Tracy was about as an artist, because it just wasn't one or two pieces. You understand the mindset when you see a whole work of art together. And I thought, and that, that was a, 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 big moment, a big moment of realization, that, that here was somebody that was deep and, uh, and had, a, had a story to tell through art. And I think that's the same of all of those artists. But yeah. if you go into the greatest hits, you might come away going, well, that's an empty thing, or you just see a, a chopped-up sheep in formaldehyde. Yeah, in a, in you, a, you've seen it so much that it's lost all meaning. Yeah, but to see that physically and walk in amongst those vitrines that it's chopped within, yeah. I, I, I think that was sensational, sensational. It really was. Yeah. And especially if you were eight, that must have gone, wow. I don't know how old I was. But then later on, I've seen, so, yeah, yeah, seen the bed since. Yeah. as a grown woman, probably like five years ago. Right. And it was so amazing to, I think it was in uh, Tate Britain. Everyone I've it. ever slept with. No, no, it was the bed. Oh, the bed, sorry. Yeah, yeah, and um, just the hush when you walk into the room and the people just standing around just, just crying, looking really? at it. Because it's just got such an effect. You know, so Tracy moving. said it used to have a noose. Really? When, she, when it first exhibited in Japan, the noose was part of it. And, in, and, and that, that, you know, obviously suicidal. But that, she took that as. I'm glad she did. Yeah, it still has the suitcase, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, I'm leaving Everything. this scene. Yeah. I think so. There's loads of stuff all over the place. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the suitcase is a big part of that, but yeah. Um, I think we'd better end quite soon. <laughs> Rabbit away. I want to ask you about... Do you think in, in the future people could make a book this good about this decade? <laughs> Imagine if I said, no, how arrogant of it, no. Well, no, it's, but I, <laughs> About the decade me, we're like, now living in, do you mean? From 2010 to 2020, mm. I mean, I can't remember what's happened. <laughs> I don't think it's been as... I mean, you know, you can't really compare things to the 90s or the 60s because they were just so transformative, but... Do you know what? I think that there is going to be an extraordinary book to be written about the decade we're living in at the moment really? but it won't be in the similar because no decade will ever be the same in the same way that don't look back in anger is is about uh, uh, an optimism and a hedonism whereas walls come tumbling down was about an, a political angst and a social reaction i think that the decade we're in now is is an uprising of youth culture uh, in uh speaking you know today um we're in London, where the uh, and a, where there's going to be the biggest march in history that's been replicated across all cities around the world about climate change, yeah. and that's a story that's growing and growing. And people like Greta Thunberg, and then you you mix that in with what's been happening in uh, in Parliament uh, in in this decade, and uh, and the changes of government. And the and the the result of the referendum in 2016, and then you kind of backtrack to the mass turnout of youth to to go and hear Jeremy Corbyn speak. Yeah. Whether you like what he stands for or not, in my lifetime, I I've never seen 
hundreds if not thousands of thousand people go and speak to somebody who is essentially getting up on a soapbox yeah. to talk about his political beliefs. I was at Glastonbury that year. Yeah, me too. It was good. Yeah, well, I wasn't at the, in the big field. I was in Billy Bragg's tent when oh, he yeah. came after. Yeah. And, and, and then you went around that festival and wherever you went, whichever field, you'd hear that, oh, oh Jeremy yeah. Corbyn. And, there's something, and, and it was <laughs> yeah. extraordinary that this thing was happening around him and that that story with him and all that and then you know then you then you then you from that base you can then look out culturally what's going on and mm. feed in and feed in so the most difficult thing is recognizing recognizing often what's happening why you're in it and i don't think that when i was uh being hedonistic myself in the 90s i was aware that this is cool, Britannia. You know, it, right, exactly. I, don't, I don't think I probably even knew or ever said those words or even knew those you words. You were in existed. your flat on the Joel, not doing much in the daytime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but and then you find out about these things. I mean, I never read Vanity Fair, who mm. defined it, or G or, or Newsweek, so I wasn't aware of that. I didn't know anybody that read those magazines. But subsequently, you you learn about these things, or as I've done, tried to, to go back and define an era by. Uh, and, and I think that will, that will certainly, it will be a very different story, but there's a hell of a story brewing story at the moment that we're banging in the middle of. We all are. Yeah, I think you're right. I hope you're right anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, even though I could actually talk to you about this literally all day, I think we'd better stop. But thank oh. you so much. Well, it's, thank it's you for having me. Amazing I love talking book. to you, Liv. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. I'll talk to you when you've got a next book out. <laughs>